Episode 34 with poet and scholar Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is the second part of my incredible conversation with Sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. In our previous episode, Alexis really illustrates how simply allowing oneself to sit with grief can bring profound insight, including the lessons marine life has to teach us. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to start there. Alexis will jump right back into the flow. As we move into the end of the calendar year, we often discuss what we are making space for in our lives, both individually and collectively. In this episode, Alexis continues to challenge us to consider a new way of being, moving, and of relating to capitalism, to love, and to spirit. She encourages us to imagine what's possible in our own lives if we choose a self-directed path. Perhaps you'll hear your own voice, or the voice of your ancestors, reminding you that there is another way to swim. There is another way to love. And yes, there's even another way to breathe. And that, my friends, is Black Liberation. I'm so excited to share the rest of this conversation with you. Definitely let us know what spoke to you over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Now, let's get right into part two of our conversation with Alexis. You said something that was... You said it quickly, but it was so powerful. He was like, I have my own way to swim. I found another way to swim. And that that makes me think about, you know, your relationship and or career to and with academia. Um, And, you know, for those, you know, maybe unfamiliar who are listening, you know, there is this very kind of rote academic track that one takes, you know, you know, through to your PhD to, you know, getting the tenure and all of these things. Um, and it seems like it's one that you've resisted in a way. Um, especially when you were speaking about, um, (laughs) your, your swim lessons. I was like, I mean, when you, if you want to talk about a constant song, that we're all singing, <laughs> you know, in our lives. This seems about to be the one. Um, so, so what, 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 what is your, you know, your relationship, you know, to the academy, um, and how, how, how have you resisted it? Why did you resist it? Yeah. Yeah, I, there is another way to swim is definitely a good way to describe my relationship with the, with the academy. Um, there's infinite ways to swim, you know, but like there's a way I want to swim. You know, it feels so, so extremely right to me. So what I would say is that my 
you're right. There is this idea, you know, we're like, okay, you're, you're in the academy, you're in it for particular reasons, you get a PhD so that you can have access to this potential job security. And so then you have tenure and then you reproduce institutions where other people are going to get their education and their undergraduate education, and then they're going to get their PhD. And, you know, that that's going to continue to, to exist as an institution and as a relationship to knowledge and Black people have had access to relating to that institution in that way for not very long. Like it's, it's been recent. I mean, when we think about, you know, this is the Institute of Black Imagination, you know, so, so there's centuries of Black genius that are just around us every time that we listen to this podcast or, or create this podcast. And so to understand that Anna Julia Cooper one of the first black women to get a PhD who was born in slavery here in North Carolina, there was no university for her to go teach at after she got her PhD. First of all, she went to France to even get her PhD. And it wasn't like she could plug then into, she's not going to go teach at any college, let, let alone, um, you know, uh, an institution that could have, that would give tenure to a black woman you know, at, at, at that time. W.E.B. Du Bois, he did not have the option of being a tenure track academician. When you think about an intellectual like that, you're like, he didn't have access. It's not to say that he chose to not do that. That was not one of the options for how he would use what he learned or how he would live his intellectual life. It just, it just was not. And so there's a very long tradition that, that I draw inspiration and strength from of Black people who understand themselves to be intellectuals, who dive into that fully, and they understand that, that it is to be in service of our people in multiple ways. You think about Du Bois, like he loved to create these pageants where people that could be these sensory educational experiences, definitely design like experiences that that was part of what came out of his research as a sociologist, you know, that's, that's wonderful. And that's phenomenal. And it's something that I almost feel like sometimes I'm a living reminder of it for folks who maybe are my same age or who are younger than me, who now that there is this thing, and now that we do have these great people we can look at, you know, like we can, we can look at all the people I think of as my mentors. You can look at these incredible black scholars who do have tenures. We can, we can look at Farrah Jasmine Griffin, who was one of my mentors since I was an undergraduate, who was the founding chair of the African-American studies department at Columbia University. And we can say like, this is possible so beautiful because heck yeah reclaim all of those things and you know I just so much space has been made for me by black scholars who've made space in the academy for emergent black genius and I feel like a, a living reminder to the fact that there's also another way to swim and there's a long a longer history of what black intellectual life is that exists in so many forms and can be shared in so many ways and actually must be shared in ways that not only move beyond the academy itself, but that also focus their energy 
on creating alternative institutions, creating different possibilities that cannot, that the academy will not create or produce and cannot create or produce. And, and some of us do need to reclaim our energy, the energy that gets spent to reproduce the university which I see some of my, you know, my colleagues and mentors doing, and they're doing it intentionally so that because they're helping reproduce the institution, they can have a say in who has access to it in particular ways and what happens there in particular ways. I see that as a strategy. It's just not the only strategy. And it even it itself is a strategy that is supported by the fact that it's not the only place. It's not the only option. And this is even on just a, a number scale, there's no way that every single person who gets a PhD in an area that has to do with, with Black life or who wants to apply their PhD and whatever it is to, to Black freedom, that then they're going to all be teachers inside a university to do that. That's not, I mean, unless you only have one student at a time. <laughs> And then you retire immediately when they graduate. That just, that, just, that just doesn't make sense numerically. And that's not what we would want it to be. But then there's a lack of visibility for what people are doing who are not doing, once again, the important work of teaching inside the university to make space for those other people who are coming, coming up and coming through. And so there becomes this story for generations of black geniuses if they don't if they don't take on that role to reproduce the university that they're not that what they did inside the university isn't valuable when of course it is no of course it is so um so i say that to kind of to, to kind of say what my analysis is in terms of that now has this all been an analytical decision? No, this has been <laughs> this has been me being who I am and expressing my priorities. And so for me, it wasn't the case. And I think this is important to say, because I think it's a different thing if someone goes into an academic trajectory with a particular goal and then they totally change what that goal is to become something else. But people do that. For me, I I just I mean, I've heard you identify as, as like a curious person and really like a natural student, like without institutions, you would be constantly learning. And, and that's the type of person that you are. And that's the type of person that I am too. Like, I just, I just love school so much. I love school so much that, that my parents ended up joining a church because I was jealous that other kids would have, got to go to school on Sunday. So like I had to have a Sunday school to go to. Like, I love school. I love the opportunity to learn things with other people. I just love it. And I saw it early on. And this is a blessing to my history teachers in middle school and in high school who allowed us to do primary research. So thank you and shout out to them. I saw it as this portal. Like there's a way for through this thing, some, sometimes it's called research where, and study where I can be connected 
with so many generations and species and forms of life, there's so, so much to learn. And I love that. That's why I love books. That's why I love libraries. That's why I love school. And when I made my decision to get a PhD, I made that decision because of that. I was like, you know, and again, there are many ways that I could research about Black women's lives. It's just that if I had to work some other type of job at the same time, it would marginalize that which is really the center of what I want to do. And I wanted, I just wanted to be there in the archive. I wanted to be reading and rereading and talking about these things. And I understood that I would have more ability to really give my labor to the types of organizations that I wanna collaborate with that I could learn from if I funded that stage of my life in this particular way that is through a fully funded PhD. And that, that was the decision that I made. And key to that is that while many people decide to get a certain degree because they see it as something that will give them access to a certain type of job, I made a decision to get a certain degree in order to not have to get a job. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the reason. And that's still my primary strategy. How is it that I can be available to the multitude, multitudes of love that I'm supposed to be learning through, also teaching and transmitting without Well, with, while following what my grandfather said, who my grandfather was um, somebody who owned his own businesses his entire life. And what he said was, Alexis, which is the way he pronounced my name, Alexis, I realized I worked too damn hard to work for somebody else. And I was like, oh, okay. And there's a lesson about the extractiveness of capital. There's a, there's a, um, a lesson about what it means to build build something that um, you will, will never fully be accountable to you. You know that there, there were lessons in that that had to do with my grandfather's experience of what his options were as somebody who, you know, lived in a time where working for somebody else um, maybe it still does, but included some harms to his dignity that he wasn't um he, he was not okay with even though sometimes it was so much harder to own his own business and there was so much less security in that and there's so much more risk in that and then it was a black business owner there were all these different ways that you could be um legally and financially excluded that he was like but if i'm gonna if I'm gonna like work a miracle just to be alive and continue to make things happen here, it's gonna be exactly the miracle I said I want to make. <laughs> you know that that is that was his approach, and I very much I very much take after him in many ways. He also loved poetry. He also um, also just really loved the ocean, and like his daily practice was to be in the ocean every day. 
Um, yeah, I, I think there is another way to swim. And I, I want it to be clear that it's not, it's not to say that other people are just less creative for swimming the way that they're swimming. It's, it's just to say that I feel so, I feel so supported by the work itself, by the generations of creativity that I come out of and by the actual space to practice exactly what my priority is every day. And to me, the form of support that would come from like a, a consistent paycheck from an endowed institution does not um, com even slightly compare. It, do it doesn't become a, a relevant consideration. It doesn't even seem like, a, like an option to me. And yeah, so that, <laughs> that's, how, that's how I'm out here swimming. And, um, and I'm grateful, you know, that I get to be in collaboration with, with different institutions. I'm grateful that people give me access to their students to visit and they assign my books. I'm grateful that I get to continue to be in collaboration with people who are working in those institutions because then we get to do all these things that they wouldn't be able to do without my partnership and I wouldn't be able to do without their partnership. You know, we, we get to practice that collaboration. No, that is... Um, you know, you know, I didn't really even think about W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, or any, you know, autodidact, right? Who is just curious, right, about the world, always a constant student. And there are multiple ways to display um, and to explore outside of, of, of the institution. Um, but that, you know, in it, it, it makes me think, because you mentioned Sunday school, um, and in reading dubs and undrowned and dubs, I mean, like, if you're listening, please, I don't, you know, just, you know, if you, if you can't afford to hit us up, we'll, we'll send you a, we'll send you a copy because like, you know, your, your, your voice and when I say voice, I mean like the voice you speak from, um, you know, undulates from, you know, almost kind of like this Greek chorus, like kind of multi-siren song. Like, like when I read it, I hear like 100 people talking, um, you know, to some things that are like more anecdotal, you know, in, in, in Drowned. Um, but immediately what i what i feel and and then also know right because of of your own practice but like what i immediately feel is spirit right like is is this a spirit work like this is beyond you know space and time um this is beyond one lifetime um but this is the voice of the past you know pushing forward and the future calling right like pulling like we're in that that liminal like tandem space um and so what is your relationship 
to spirit and how do you uh, use it in your practice? And that can include, you know, your own upbringing and I'm assuming some type of religious experience, but like, what is that? How does that move through you? Yeah, it is all spirit work. It is, it is all spirit work for sure. I think that, I mean, it is interesting. There, there is a story of how I didn't know this. I didn't know this until I was adult. And my father told me this about the Sunday school thing. I was like, oh, I thought like, I thought we were just Episcopal. <laughs> and that's why we went to that church. So, um, but no, they were, they had no intention of being part of that church or going to church at all. It was, it was me who was like, heard my friends at school say this will happen at Sunday school. And I was like, uh, eh, eh. <laughs> like there's, there's, um, I am not missing out on any school. So um, that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, and, and that is, it's also to say that in my, in my family, religion and for sure Christianity has been somewhat secondary like there have been important you know my grandmother was part of so many churches that when she passed away there was like a whole fight over like where where was her you know service going to be held and part of the reason for that was because she was an organizer and she understood that churches are among the most important institutions of black life. And therefore, if she wanted things to happen and she wanted people to come together, that's where she needed to be. And she needed to be involved and she needed to be contributing to those spaces. And she needed to also be able to call on them to support beyond the institution of, of the church itself. And yeah, I think I think that there's something important about about that that taught me that when people gather and when people collaborate and when they're committed to each other and when they make things happen that go beyond the individualistic scale of their personal ego or gain that's spiritual. Their investment in it, their reason for being there, their connection to each other is what we would call spirit. It's something that's not, that maybe none of us or none of them could describe. It's something that is felt more than it is known. And it's something that is more powerful than whatever thoughts there are that we're having. That, that's something I can see in, in my grandmother's work and my grandparents' work um, related to many things, um, including that, the revolution in Anguilla in 1967, but that, that also is, is a whole nother story. So I always saw that there was something, you know, I'm, I w- was an intellectual from a kid, obviously, as I, as I said, I love school, I love books, I love reading about things, I love asking people what they thought and asking questions. But then what made me start writing poetry was that there was something else. You know, there was something when I tried to write about 
how I felt about my grandfather, or I started to write about my uncle's voice, or even like my father's eyes, there was something that I knew I was reaching for. I was never going to be able to describe it in the poem, but the poem was a ceremony for that, that possibility or that, that reaching or that indescribable something. And I think that that is how I first started to, to work with spirit. Because the other thing is that that process itself of attending to, attending to the energy that I felt moving is important. But then there's also something that I experienced as a child, reading, reading people poems, like really praise poems about themselves that was like, oh, it's their spirit I'm connecting to. It's their spirit that responds to that. And that's, that's what I love. That, that's the part of, you know, if it then comes to, it's not an individual person I'm writing a praise poem for, but if it comes to what I'm sending out into our broader community or how I wanna relate to the specific communities that I'm in, I love your brain, I love your body. I, I wanna cherish and, and nourish all of that. But I want our spirits to be able to relate because that is, I think that's the most powerful thing that can happen. And I'm not saying I can always make it happen. I'm just saying that that possibility, that's why I wake up. That's why I do the practices that I do. That's why I show up. That's why, that's wherever I am, that's why I'm there. That's why I'm here with you. I think there's something, our, our spirits, and maybe they're not just ours, it's just spirit through us can engage and be expressed and be felt. And that is, that's miraculous to me. That is everything to me. So, so my work then is listening it's, it's listening and that listening beyond my individuality is what, what has the voice, you know, the voice, voice and voices of Dub be so collective um, and it also has my longing so specifically for listening to marine mammals to be, to be worth doing every single day, you know, like undrowned and uh, every, every book that I've written is a book I wrote every single day. And it was the first thing I did that day. And so it means that whatever that practice was, some of these, I didn't know Undrowned was even gonna be a book. I, it was just a practice that, that I was in. I didn't think of it like, I'm gonna write a book of meditations of remembers. I was just like, no, I'm just gonna prioritize that inside of my day. And at a certain point it was like, oh, it's important to share this. And I was just sharing it on social media. And then people were like, girl, we need this in the book. <laughs> this is what we need to have happen. And I, you know, I, I say yes to that, but, but it's, it's all spirit work. It's all spirit period. And I think that what I do is just, just infinite small ceremonies to remember that. I think that's all I do. Like, even when I'm just like 
drinking tea or eating something. It's all just a small ceremony for remembering that and having the opportunity to remember it again. And, and I will say that it, it resonates. It resonates with the relationships to institutions. Like I talked about, you know, my grandmother's relationship to church. It resonates with, it resonates with, with practice. You know, my, my people are people of daily practice. So my grandfather would go into the ocean every day and he would say it was about perspective. He would, he would recite that quote, you know, each day is the world made new. And you can see that at the shoreline because it's different every day. And that was, that was one of his daily practices. My mom is very much on daily, my grandmother, like their daily prayers, their daily inspirational readings. My dad would take a picture of the sunrise and the sunset, like the things that I saw them do things every day that were about spirit, even though they might not have said, this is my spiritual practice. I knew that it was their way of touching and inviting into their lives every day and with priority and consistency, something bigger than them, whether it had to do with nature or whether it had to do with um, reading the Bible or whether it had to do with praying for other people. It's, it is sacred because we say yes to it every day. And there's a form of, there's a form of surrender in that commitment, but there's also a very clear intentionality in it. I say surrender because I don't necessarily know what's gonna come out of my daily practices. It's different than a daily production schedule. And though I may produce writing every day, uh, it is not all readable writing. <laughs> it is not all shareable writing. It's not necessarily for that. It's part of my process to surrender to that. And I think that, that I think that's important. I think there's a spiritual ethos to practice, any committed practice, really because it's a lived statement of belief in whatever that practice is. That also counts for unintentional practices, you know? So I think that the quote unquote bad habits people have, whatever, anything that we do every day, we're saying we believe in it and we surrender to it. And, you know, I have so many daily intentional practices, but we all have daily unintentional practices too. <laughs> you know, like if I say yes via email to something that I don't really want to do, if that happens once a day, that means I believe in that. I believe that I have to say yes to things that I don't actually feel like doing. And that's something that I can potentially shift if I notice it, if I don't notice it, it's, it's just creating what my, what my life is just as much as my daily writing practice is creating my life as a, as a writer. 
And my daily practice of FaceTiming with my nieces is creating my life as an auntie. Anything I do regularly, even if it's just every week, is creating my life. And it, and it is, it has spiritual implications. Mm. And, you know, speaking of, of, of spirit, um, what does spirit, who I don't know how to phrase this question, um, but what, what does spirit, how does spirit, what relationship to spirit do queer, you know, BIPOC individuals have, right? Like, what does spirit have to say to us? How can we relate to it? And I, the reason the question is a bit murky is because, you know, uh, me personally, but then also through conversation and community, understand that so many queer people of color, you know, across whatever spectrum, you know, their their first introduction to to spirit was through the church and for many of them that was traumatic um in you know trying to be cleansed or healed or you know even you know assaulted right like that that that, that's a very um it has been a very emotionally verbal physically toxic place for 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 us but yet and yet i know that there is, you know, in the church tradition, they say plenty good room, right? That we are not left out of that equation. Um, and knowing that you and your partner also have your own kind of mobile, spiritual practice, ceremony, church services, you know, through the lens of like queer blackness or BIPOCness. How do we relate to spirit? What does spirit have to say to us? And how can we maybe reconnect to it if we've just severed it from the trauma? That's a big question, I know. It's an important question. It's an important question. I love that question. I think that, I think that all, the existence of all beings is a spiritual question. But when it comes to queer BIPOC people, when it comes to us, for two reasons. I mean, just being Black people, Indigenous people, people of color in a racist context means that we exist in a context that says we should not exist. And therefore, our existence is not logical. It must be spiritual. It must be spiritual. Right, so in order to love myself as a black person in a society that is anti-black, I'm drawing on something beyond what I can see around me, or I'm perceiving what's around me in a way that's infused with a spiritual possibility beyond what my society has made space for. So it's, I think it's, it's inherently spiritual. If it's all inherently spiritual, this is obviously spiritual. <laughs> it, it, it must be spiritual. And then as a queer person, this queerness, I think it's very much related to what I said earlier about desire. Like I know what I want to eat. 
to just be a little crass in my queerness, <laughs> it's all the same, right? Like it's, it's the same thing if you take the pun to its, um, <laughs> to its extent. It's to say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shape my relationships and my love to what is normative, to what people say is safe, to what I'm actually gonna follow the love that I feel. I'm gonna follow it. I'm gonna risk for it. I'm gonna transform in service of it. I'm gonna transform other people <laughs> in service of me loving who I love. That is, that puts a priority on love and a trust in our own desire and intuition for what feels right to us. That definition of the erotic that Audre Lorde offers. And I think that is spiritual. Why would I erase or at least displace that which is valued in the society that I live in in order to believe that there's another possibility and that it's possible for me to follow my heart, my love, my desire, even if I don't see it reflected or even if where I do see it reflected, people are being punished for being who they are. That takes spiritual resource. What I draw on to do that is spirit. There's nothing else to really draw on. And so I think that queer BIPOC existence is a testament to spirit in itself. It's a testament to spirit that we exist. And I believe in that. And that is sacred and holy. And that is worth building institutions around <laughs> to support and to embrace and to give us spaces to be together. And, and that's part of, I mean, mobile homecoming, the entire thing comes out of like, we want to be together intergenerationally. My partner and I now, like, I don't know, 13 years ago, <laughs> quite some time ago, we're like, we really want to be with some queer Black people who are not our same age because we, we want that. We deserve that. We, they deserve us, you know, like we get to be queer across time and what are the structures for that? So we started to have retreats, we started to have gatherings and something that came out of it is such a powerful expression of what I said before, which is that what I'm about is us relating through spirit. You know, it's, it's, it's never less than spirit. And then my partner, Shango Dare's existence as like a multi-multi-generational preacher's kid raised by Black Baptists um, here in the Carolinas and just such a steward of the particular aesthetic tradition of Black preachers of the South and ministers of music and, and all, all of that energy that, that infuses Black church spaces here in the South who is yet a black queer feminist theologian was to say, oh, it's spirit. Nothing spiritual can actually be taken away from us. It's spirit. That's just not how spirit works. So 
everything that sustains and uplifts and nourishes our spiritual relation, we can claim it, we can tap into it. And it's, it's so profoundly healing for those of us who have, have experienced the spiritual violence that you're talking about where those traditions, those ancestral traditions and cadences and songs and practices are used to threaten and exclude people for following our hearts, for exceeding the um, limits of social control that those institutions want to impose. It's been so healing for them to hear those cadences reclaimed with love to say that like we are sacred and we are worthy of love and our texts are sacred and black lesbian feminist socialists create sacred texts you know that we draw on that that are life affirming and it doesn't undo the spiritual violence that unfortunately is still ongoing but what it reminds us is that no no, no one can be shut out of spirit. Whatever our name's for, if it's the love of God, if it's the affirmation of the universe, if it's participation in the unified field of, of quantum physics, whatever it is that we understand that to be, if it is what it is, then there's no way to partition it off and exclude anyone from it. And I think that we've seen, because the Mobile Homecoming Project started as a listening project and we, we just listened to different elders and we were interested in what their daily practices were and we were interested in their spirituality. And they, you know, they're decades older than my partner and I, and they have had to reclaim their spiritual practice and make space for their own spiritual superpowers. And they have done it. And for some of them, it's been like, you know, I had to, I had to leave a church and I, and I have this Buddhist practice, you know, for some of it, it was something like that. For some of it, it was like, I sing those church songs. I sing them to myself in the bathtub every day, whatever, whatever it was for them. And for some, and for some people, it was like, so I created an inclusive church, you know, like that, but those are some of the things that that people have done. And I would say for anyone who is right now experiencing the harm of spiritual violence, who is being harmed by the false, and I think very unfortunately um, sad story that um, fearful people will tell that says that there is, that God would exclude you or that you are outside of the boundaries of all that is love, loved and lovable and holy and divine. I just go back to what I said before. There is a vibration that you came here with that is a contribution to our collective vibration. It can never be destroyed. 
our job is to listen to that vibration. If no one else can hear it, we have to listen to it. It's <laughs> the vibration that we came here with. And that is what is activated. When I feel drawn to a person, that's me listening to that. When I get to a place of intimacy where I feel I can actually be loved, that's me expressing and making space for that sound. And no one can tell me what that is. I have to actually be present to it. And it's so powerful. And this is part of the, what you, you were expressing some sadness around earlier. It's so powerful that it would and will change our entire society, our entire system of relations, every institution, even the ones that we create. When Shangodari and I had the idea for the mobile homecoming, we had this idea, then actually getting into relationship and loving all these people who we listened to, of course it transformed, it turned into something else, right? And when an institution wants to resist transformation and say, we can only be coherent if we actually um, protect ourselves from the infinite, infinitely transformative power of love, then of course, of course, the most obvious evidence of spirit, of course, the people most willing to take a risk in the service of love, of course that would be threatening to an institution that claims to love but is afraid of love. It's threatening to me to be loved when I feel afraid of love, <laughs> you know? Like if I wanna protect myself from changing, if I wanna never have to question anything I believe right now, I can't love you. I can't allow myself to be loved by another person. It's going to change me. It's going to teach me something I don't know now. It's going to require me to unlearn something that I think I know. Do I protect myself from that? Yeah, sometimes. And then love is more powerful. And that's the good news. Love is always more powerful. Love always wins. It's, it's really a matter of our presence to it. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. And I would say to anyone listening to this that's in that space, just I love you. And you are loved so, 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 so much bigger and older than even my utterance of loving you, the person listening. You are so loved. And you are evidence of love. And I just am grateful. I'm grateful for all the different iterations of queer BIPOC resplendence, of just indescribable being that we get to create with our lives. I love it. Well, you mentioned Audre Lorde, um, you know, and her notion of the erotic. Um, but I know that you have recently worked on uh, just a biography of her life. Um, could you talk to us a bit about that and, and you know, what she has um, taught you in this process? Ah, Audre Lorde. <laughs> 
that's what we when I say praise the Lord, I mean Audrey Lord, L-O-R-D-E. It's just such a divine force in the universe and in my life. So I first learned about Audrey Lord when I was in high school. And I still has right here her collected poems. It's like tattered. <laughs> you see, it's like falling apart. It is with me and it has been with me this entire time absolutely crucial to my journey of loving myself as a black queer feminist and also also just such a such a portal so Audrey Lord has been teaching me always and ever since this past few years well I'll say also and I've been like I've also been obsessed. I mean, I was the first person to do research in her papers when they became um, processed at Spelman College because I was like on the phone with the archivist, like, okay, you know, like it's it's a priority in my life. It, it, it felt, it feels like a pilgrimage whenever I go and actually touch the objects in her journals and the things that she kept to be a part of her legacy, which she kept very intentionally because she herself had a degree in library sciences. But so Audre Lorde, Black lesbian, feminist, socialist, poet, warrior, is, is a force in the universe. And what she taught me, this process of writing this biography has been so interesting because I've written about, I've been writing about Audre Lorde my entire life. And even since high school, I've been, I've been writing about her. But this particular book is is really what happened what happened was in order to write about Audre Lorde in the way that I need to for this time that we're facing I had to relearn the entire planet it's almost like a lordian guide to the universe because Audre Lorde, from a young age, she was reading science fiction. She was reading science research. She was, she was thinking about, um, she was thinking about other planets. She was challenging the binary between a star and a planet. She just, she just had a way of understanding what it was to be alive in relationship with this Earth. That is for me the core of what made her brave and brilliant life possible in the way that it existed. And she constantly talked about the fact that this was an energy that she wanted to invite all of us to find within ourselves, how to actually be aware of the fact that we are a source of ongoing energy in the universe that is not containable. And so I had to do all the things. I had to like learn geology. I had to figure out, you know, how the underwater volcano and what's going on at the bottom of the ocean that is the chemical process that is continuing to have the earth be, be a star that we're all <laughs> made of stardust on. I had to like study meteorology and storms and I mean, earthquakes, everything, <laughs> like everything. And so it's a, it's the cosmic biography really. And I learned so much about this planet 
Mm. Anyway, Audre Lorde was a person who loved the planet. Audre Lorde is a person who has not been necessarily lifted up as like an environmentalist in the um, limited way that that term has been defined. But she is somebody who, from a teenager, was actually thinking in this way and thinking on planetary and cosmic terms and committed to playing her role in that. And it's been, a, it's been a real honor to dive deep into that and to journey with her and to have her legacy and her, and her writing and her journals and her artifacts and everything I wonder about her as a companion for my own thinking through and feeling through and spirit work of what it is to be alive on this planet at this time. Yeah, so I'm, I don't know if I'll ever run out of things to be grateful to Audre Lorde for, but I'm really grateful <laughs> to her for this, this process. And, and is it available? I remember seeing something on your social about like a translation, something. So, so is it available? Her biography is not out yet. It, okay. I mean, I don't know when this, it's, it's not, no, we don't have the pub date on the biography yet, <laughs> um, which is, you know, it'll be the perfect time. I think what I shared was, and I have this here too, um, Audre Lorde's last work of prose, A Burst of Light, was recently um, released in a new edition in Switzerland. Ah, okay. Yeah, I had the honor of being able to write a preface for that, which um, which was a joy. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about, about that because I just feel so passionate, like everyone in the world should be listening to and reading and learning from Audre Lorde now and forever. Well, you know, Alexis, this has been such a blessing um, to be in conversation with you. Um, it has spoke to, I mean, it was the sermon I needed on today and to get me through um, definitely through the end of the year and definitely get me ready for 2022. Um, so, you know, thank you. Um, and I also just want to acknowledge you for, for the surrender, for the unending surrender. Um, I know that, you know, to exist in, in space time, um, is, such a blessing but also comes with its own set of challenges and to be able to even find the space to hear uh, and the span find the space to listen not only beyond yourself but like beyond our species um you know beyond land you know and through a different substrate um you know into water and obviously we'll have to have you come back again so we can dive oh my god i did it again <laughs> dive into it you know a bit more um you know before you go i would love to have you read a passage from drowned um it's about the the wattle seal that you mentioned earlier it's page 22 um, and normally, normally I, I, I ask the last question, you know, what's the world that you imagine for the future? Um, and maybe we can ask that, but like, this is, you're, you've, you've written it, right? Like you, you're, you're, 
the world you're imagining for the future, you're you're gifting us with 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 a with a vision and a perspective um, and and a perceptivity in order to do that. Like this is foundational work in order to even get to the to the dreaming. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but yeah, page twenty two, please. Yes. The baby Weddle Seal has not grown into her flippers. She is awkward. She does not want to swim. She does not know she can breathe underwater. No one has told her about the great oxygenating capacity of her blood. She doesn't know that the milk her mother gives her is some of the fat richest milk in the world. Southernmost mammal on the planet, she doesn't know the depths of which she is capable but her mother does. The mother Weddell seal will push her baby into the water against her will. She will force her child's head into the water while the baby coughs and sputters and struggles and squirms. She is new here. She does not know that she can breathe underwater until she does. And then everything changes. By the time weaning is over, she will be able to dive 2,500 feet below the water, stay there for an hour if she wants to, find a tiny hole she made for air after swimming 12 kilometers away, move gracefully between frozen and liquid worlds. But she doesn't know. Am I the only one here in a lesson? A coughing, sputtering, thrash, a struggle to stay who I thought I was ignorant to what evolution has already written inside me. I feel out of my depth, but really, how would I know? The tough love of the Weddell Seal mother teaches a lesson about the difference between what is cute and what is necessary, what has been and what could be. And I am grateful for all of my mother's biological chosen and ancestral mammal and otherwise like the copperhead snake who greeted me last night, who would shock me into knowing my capacity, trust my lungs more than I thought I could, to breathe in ways I haven't breathed before, to learn my blood in ways I didn't know it. Mm. Oh, sister doctor, sister doctor, sister doctor. Uh, that is a healing salve that will wash over me again and again and again. I cannot thank you enough. Um, you know, I love you. I love what is coming through you. Um, and I love that you are allowing it to um, because there is, you know, it's like, um, you know, you, you, you jump in the water and you're shocked by the impact and then your body adjusts and you feel held, you know, that's what these words feel like. Um, you know, and they resonate. Well, anyway, uh, if you're listening, just, you know, get, get, please 
Google it, like get it, you know, you've, you've, you've done and you are doing such beautiful work. And I am, I can't believe that there's more to come. Like that is beyond exciting. Do you know what I Better than any Christmas gift. Actually, my parents sent me this for my birthday. Uh, so, so thank you again. Have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. This was such a blessing. I also love you. I just am so grateful that of all the possible things that you could be doing, you have prioritized Black imagination and made space for these people. I mean, people who I know and love, like Jaquase and Darnell, the people who I never knew about, like our dear brother, the fencing champion, to come through and inspire generations and to be an archive for our future. I just honor that that's what you're doing with your breathing and mm. it is a blessing to all of us and it is definitely a blessing to me thank you thank you thank you we'll talk soon thank you so much i appreciate it okay ciao ciao bye thank you all so much for joining us today ah uh, let's just take a breath shall we there's so much happening in the world at the moment, so much uncertainty, but if we just go breath by breath and moment by moment, we'll discover that that is where true freedom resides, in our conscious awareness. Just sit with this conversation. Share some reflections with our community over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. We have so many exciting new guests on the way, and... Until then, stay curious and keep dreaming.